0: Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Losing the Taste for Drama. The talk was given by Bandu Dunham on May 6th, 2023 via Zoom. Bandu is author of Creative Life and an internationally recognized glass artist and teacher. In this talk, he discusses passive and active ways that we set up drama in our lives and the possibility of taking responsibility for this. He notes that, with generous trust and dignity, we can internally slow down and listen to the solicitations of the universe. During the discussion, Bandu refers to some of the teachings of Don Juan, written about by Carlos Castaneda, and of his own teacher, Lee Lasewicz. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Bondu Dunham.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm going to start by just reading the description for what I said I was going to talk about. Okay, losing the taste for drama. We might feel helpless in the face of overwhelming drama, but there are at least a few tricks we can use to get out from under its weight. We don't have to let it undermine our peace of mind, effectiveness, and intimacy. We could view our personal evolution as an aesthetic process, in which we sculpt life into something beautiful and wholesome, no matter what our circumstances, developing a sense of taste for what is best and most human in ourselves and others. Along the way, we will also lose our taste for negativity and distractions. This talk will look at one such distraction we can all afford to lose, the taste for drama. Drama is not the same as dynamism or passion. Drama in this context Is the chaos we create for ourselves, which is at least partially under our control? How can we understand drama better and avoid the chaos that is sucking the life out of us in big and small ways? That's like the big question of life, I think. I wanted, for our purposes, to define drama as being self imposed. Obviously, there are dramatic things that happen to us in life. A meteor could strike the earth, or various things can happen that literally are not under our control but I would like to suggest that there's a lot of stuff that we think isn't under our control that actually is, or at least partially is. And certainly we have control over how we respond to things. J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, she said, destiny is a name often given in retrospect to choices that had dramatic consequences. So I think that's a little bit self-explanatory, but even more to the point is what Carl Jung said, which is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. So that's very interesting to think about. What we call fate may well be something that came from our unconscious. It is directing our life. It looks like fate to us but only because we haven't made the unconscious conscious yet. And that's, to some degree, a lifelong journey, but we can begin to do that by reverse engineering, actually. There's a lot of reverse engineering in dealing with drama because, you know, we just see something as drama, but if we are able to reverse engineer it, by which I mean inquiring in ourselves, could there be something I did that set this up? And we'll talk about some of the specifics of that. As we go on. But by reverse engineering, we can start to make the unconscious conscious. So, a big part of the secret of dealing with drama is seeing drama for what it is, which is something that we often create for ourselves. Seeing it for what it is is actually a big step in loosening its grip on how we live our life,
0: how we experience our life.
1: How do we create drama? Well, like many things, it's easy to see how other people do it. I think we probably all have the experience of seeing how other people create drama in their lives. Maybe a little show of hands, if you have seen (laughs) how other people create drama. It's usually pretty obvious when someone's suffering, and it's something they created for themselves. It's sometimes sad, sometimes funny, but it's often something we do for ourselves. I have an expression I use when I'm teaching glass blowing, which I do sometimes, that it's all in the setup. When you're creating something out of glass, glass has ways of responding to the forces interacting on it. And the forces interacting on it on glass when you're shaping it in a torch flame are heat and gravity and surface tension. And those may seem to be immutable forces, but actually. By what you do, you can control how those forces affect glass. So you can set it up so that gravity, heat, and surface tension are going to make the glass do what you want it to do. You can't necessarily force the glass directly, but if you set up the interaction of those forces, you can get the glass to do pretty much whatever you want. And I think the same thing is true in life in that it's all in the setup. Right now, I am setting things up for my experience later, and I may not be thinking of that. It may be things I'm unconsciously setting up, as Jung was saying. The unconscious is guiding my life in ways that I may not be aware of if I don't make it conscious. So it's all in the setup, and we can reverse engineer our experience of life by looking at what am I experiencing right now? How did I set that up in the past? And maybe that will give me some clues to what I might be setting myself up for the future, especially if you notice patterns in your life. If you've ever used that expression, this always happens to me. We'll talk more about feeling like a victim later. But if this always happens to you, that could be a clue that it may be something that you have an unconscious pattern about creating. So I want to talk about some of the techniques we use for setting up drama in our life. I put them into two categories. One is passive techniques and one is active techniques. Passive techniques largely fall under the category of filters that we perceive reality through. And because we see things through these filters, our experience looks a certain way and we interpret what other people are doing through these filters that causes us to have an emotional reaction or justify an emotional reaction that we might not be aware of. If you know any people with a hair trigger, does anyone know anyone with a hair trigger in your life? It seems like you never know when you're going to set that off. But if I have a hair trigger in my life, it's a way of setting up drama for myself. Or if you might be one of those unfortunate people with a hair trigger, a short fuse, there's a number of expressions for it probably. And there's an expression that Werner Erhard used in the S training, which is to have a listening for. Are people familiar with that expression? For those of you who aren't, it means I might be walking into a situation or even going through life in general, and I'm listening for things. Like I might be listening for comments that offend my sensibility somehow, or comments that prove that people don't respect me, right? If I'm primed for a fight because I feel like I'm not respected. I develop a listening for anything that might seem like disrespect or could be interpreted easily as disrespect. And then if someone does or says something that fits that thing that I'm listening for, then I'm ready to react because I knew it. You know, I knew it. <sighs> and that's another expression. If you find yourself using it or thinking it, It could be a clue that you've set yourself up for something. I knew this was going to happen. This always happens to me. I knew this was going to happen. I knew I couldn't trust this person. So those are ways that we can reverse engineer our experience if we see that things are going a certain way. It may be that we've created this dramatic experience by virtue of having this listening for to begin with. So drama, I wanted to point out that drama is a great way to hide from or evade the simple fact that I'm self-involved. Again, this is the kind of thing that's really easy to see in other people, I think. But my dramatic responses and experiences and interpretations of things might boil down to I might have a tendency to make things all about me. I'm sure no one here has a habit like that. But it's a thing to watch out for. So what I'd like to do is talk about these setup techniques, the passive ones and active ones, and then we'll open it up for comments or questions that people might have. So among the different filters, we've talked about having a listening for, a hair trigger, and also I wanted to mention interpretation of situations. So that's related to a listening for. But also, even if you're not looking out for something in particular, a certain stimulus Might be the basis for having an interpretation of what's going on in any given circumstance that creates pain. Somebody says something that might not be meant as an insult at all, but I might be primed to hear it as an insult because of the way I'm interpreting things. Someone walks by you at work, wherever you work, someone walks by and does not say good morning. And it's very easy to interpret that as, oh, this person is hostile. They don't like me. They're mad at me. People have that experience. I think it's pretty common. When in fact, all they did was just not say good morning. they could be caught up in their own little world for their own reasons. Also, there's this thing I've mentioned before in talks. I'm not really sure of the exact source. But a friend of mine who spends a lot of time with Native American people, medicine men and such, said that this is a Native American teaching and sounds good to me. I couldn't find it in a particular book where I thought it was, but the idea is that there's three errors of man: judgment, comparison and expectation. So most of our suffering, our self-imposed suffering, falls under one of those three categories: judgment, comparison and expectation. If you're ever feeling unhappy, dissatisfied, frustrated, annoyed, that whole range of negative emotion, You might consider, if you set yourself up for that, by doing one of those three things. Creating a comparison between what you've got going on and what you maybe think should be going on, or what someone else has going on that you think is better. Passing a judgment on something that may not really merit judging. There's a lot of things in life that don't merit judging, but we tend to judge them anyway. So those three errors, judgment, comparison, and expectation. They're great ways to set ourselves up for drama. I don't want it to sound like life is boring if there's no drama, (laughs) because in some respects, it seems like all the time, all we're doing is creating drama for ourselves. And there are spaces in between the dramas we create in which we experience a peaceful state of mind, which I often think of as being perhaps a goal in life, not to have unnecessary drama. So those are the filters I want to talk about. Interpretation of situations, listening for, and judgment, comparison, and expectation that set. So those are passive ways of creating drama. Active ways of creating drama, active techniques include entanglement. Ooh, that's a good one. I think we may all be familiar with forms of entanglement that are getting yourself involved in some situation or some other person's life in ways that we don't need to. Injecting ourselves into someone else's life in a way that might be overdone, a little bit more than necessary. So that's one form of entanglement, active form of entanglement. But there's a somewhat less active form of entanglement, which is contempt. If you have contempt for a person, you're entangled with them just automatically. If I have a contemptuous feeling about a person, then whatever they do, I'm primed. To just have this reaction to it, like roll my eyes about what they've got going on. So-and-so, oh, they're always doing that thing. That contempt, it hooks me into what they're doing. My teacher had a saying, to become that which nothing can take root in. To become that which nothing can take root in. Meaning not to let yourself get entangled in situations. Sometimes that's easier said than done, of course. But again, we can reverse engineer our circumstance. If I find myself rolling my eyes either outwardly or inwardly over something that someone I know or just someone in politics, someone I saw on the internet, someone on TV, right? If you find yourself yelling at the radio or yelling at the TV or yelling at the internet, uh, you might be entangled (laughs) in something that's going on. Not that there aren't plenty of things to be outraged about in the world. But entanglement doesn't necessarily serve. And of course, speaking of the internet, the internet is designed to entangle us. All the algorithms on social media, the whole point of them is to entangle you. If you want to study entanglement and how we become entangled, again, that's an opportunity to reverse engineer. See how you respond on Facebook when you see these things come up over on the side, all that clickbait. Just begging you to get what what happened to Sylvester Stallone? <laughs> you know why do I care about what happens to Sylvester Stallone? I guess he's a nice guy should have a nice life but clickbait creates ways for you to become entangled. It's brilliant and something to be very wary of. So entanglement is a more active way of creating drama in our lives. Procrastination I was talking to someone about this earlier today procrastination is a great way to create drama in your life. Again, it's all in the setup. So if I'm putting off something that I know I need to do, I end up, you may have observed this yourself, you end up spending, I don't know, some factor, maybe it's 10 times as much energy dealing with the procrastination and thinking about it, thinking about how I should be doing, but I don't want to do it, why I don't want to do it, and why I don't like this thing that I have to do. All these things that are the basis of procrastination. So procrastination is a great way to set up drama. Denial, which is often a foundation for procrastination, to be in denial about what's going on. If there's something going on in a relationship I'm in, any of my relationships, or in my business, my job, any situation where I'm in denial, putting something off, not really seeing something that I kind of see out the corner of my eye, putting that off, being in denial. That's a great way to set up drama, because those are very often, You have noticed, those are the things that come around and bite us in the ass when we least expect it, in quotes. Well, unconsciously, subconsciously, we may very well be expecting it, and even on some level anticipating it, because there's some part of us that is looking forward to this drama, because the drama creates psychological satisfaction, even though we don't like it. The familiarity of the drama that we create for ourselves is strangely a sort of source of comfort, whether we know it or not. So, other ways of creating drama, failure to set boundaries. I was just at a workshop where we were talking about this. It's healthy to have boundaries in terms of what other people can lay on us, <laughs> interactions we have with people. We often talk about boundaries like they're out there. I have a boundary, my boundary out there, and You will either respect my boundary or cross my boundary. So, if you respect my boundary, things are going great. If you violate my boundary, then there is a problem to be dealt with. Or maybe I don't want to let you into my space at all. The thing about boundaries, and this was very interesting to me setting boundaries and respecting boundaries is really an internal process. It's entirely up to me. So, the reason someone might be violating my boundary, it's actually that I'm not respecting my own boundary. Because so if I respect my own boundary properly, then you can't cross it because the violation of the boundary is really an internal experience. So you could be out there doing whatever crazy thing, saying whatever crazy thing to me, but it's if I let it in that my boundary is getting violated. And I have a choice over that. I'm still working with that idea because sometimes it sure seems to me that it's someone out there violating my boundary. But I'm starting to come around to this idea that my boundaries really are completely internal to me. But the other thing about boundaries is a lot of times we don't bother to make boundaries, either in our own mind or expressing them if they need to be expressed. And then someone violates the boundary and I get terribly upset when the boundary was never clear to begin with. So that's another interesting thing to to consider about boundaries. I may not have set the boundary in the first place. That's a great way to create drama. (laughs) Great way to create drama. So let's see, we talked about entanglement. We talked about the failure to set boundaries or respect your own boundaries yourself. Talked about procrastination, denial. I also put down here letting things pile up, which is maybe a cross between procrastination and denial. I've got a bunch of that going on right now in my life. I've got too many things on my plate, which it's just fate, right? Oh, it's just fate that caused these things to pile up on my plate. Well, maybe, maybe not. Again, it goes back to both of these quotes, the one from Carl Jung and the one from J.K. Rowling. So again, the things that I think are fate in my life may be the things that are generated by my own unconscious activity. So at this point, I think I would like to open it up To questions and comments for a little bit. And then the next part of the talk is going to be about some ideas of my own, but also quotes from other people about reducing drama and dealing with drama and working with it. So we've laid out some of the problem.
2: Yeah. When you were talking about boundaries, I find there's often the feeling that I'm overstepping somebody else's boundaries. Uh It's not that it's coming this way. It's like, I'm going that way in search of drama, looking for trouble overstepping the boundaries that have been laid out there Mm
1: -hmm. that's a very good technique
0: yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. boundaries go both ways. well one thing is that we're assuming that we want to reduce or eliminate drama but it seems like at some level we really like it Hmm. and we keep it going yeah it's
1: that comfort of familiarity. Creating drama is a skill. Maybe it's a native thing in our consciousness, but I think to some degree, it's a skill we learn in childhood from our family circumstance, right? Or in school, from TV. What was that quote? In Network, guys complaining that the younger woman he's having an affair with learned about life from Bugs Bunny. And I think that's true of a lot of us.
0: It's ubiquitous to really work on oneself or to practice on the spiritual path, it seems like we have to not be overwhelmed by it at least or to manage it.
2: No. It is also possible that the mitigating act of ritual brings us closer to where we can sort of blend the esoteric with the physical by creating ritual and repeating it. I think that there's good drama when you decide that you're going to search and just find whatever creative thing that you are going to come up with.
1: Yeah, as far as the creation of drama being an innate thing, it's manifesting, it's bringing something from consciousness into manifestation and ritual in particular can be a way of merging consciousness with physical manifestation, reality, and to bring consciousness into alignment with something higher and ground it in our physical experience. James Hillman said that the natural function of the mind is to pathologize. If I have an internal conflict, there's a need to bring it out into some kind of manifestation, and then I can deal with it if I'm conscious of that. So being conscious of that, I'd say, might be a foundation for creating ritual. Whereas if you're not conscious of it, then we're creating drama as a way of re-experiencing this internal conflict or a trauma that we can't resolve. And we unconsciously recreate it because on some level we want to have the experience, but make it turn out okay this time. That's how people get in abusive relationships over and over again, because they've had some form of abuse that they're trying to re-experience and somehow work it out. One of the definitions of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And we do that to greater and lesser degrees, I think, by some of the drama we create. So ritual, I think, is a wholesome way of doing that. can be a way of bringing forward wholesome things from consciousness, or even bringing things that are less desirable out into the open, where they can be, on some level, addressed and resolved or purified, or whatever is our way of coming to terms with it.
3: A form of drama that I see that's quite frequent, is drama as being a strategic form of manipulation. Yeah, You want to get something, whatever it is, to go the way you think it should go, and so you make a big drama.
1: Yeah, we create a lot of drama for ourselves. That's mostly what I've been Mm -hmm. talking about. But we do create drama for other people by going out and violating their boundaries, maybe, or just setting something up, some kind of calamity that then creates a circumstance that is conducive to some outcome we're trying to create. In other words, manipulating. Quite common. Yeah. Yeah. And the drama, the drama in that circumstance, is like squid ink to conceal the fact that we're trying to manipulate the circumstance. You create this drama and things just happen to work out the way you wanted them to. It looks like your hands are clean when really there's all this behind the scenes engineering of the circumstance.
4: Drama is very
2: addictive because there's a sense of power. Yeah. But being able to do something, something's going to happen. And that's addictive. Yeah.
1: In the domain of politics, it's not unusual <laughs> to see people creating dramatic chaos just to keep themselves in the news cycle and to keep people's attention on themselves.
5: So I found on examining myself that Being offended is a great way to keep drama going and manipulate others because when someone's offended, then everyone has to watch what they say around you. Or if you're afraid of offending someone, then you can't just speak plainly because you don't want to offend anyone. And it really creates a cycle.
1: Yeah. And again, that's like I was talking about the hair trigger or the listening for if either yourself or someone else is very prone to ah, having a big reaction. After a while, it's like, you know, okay, whatever, have it your way. After a while, you just get tired of dealing with someone else's drama, which may be an indication of something you need to do for your own boundaries. If it's not workable. Ideally, with our friends and people we're in relationships with, we can, in a sense, cut through the drama to have real conversations about what's going on. If we're really connected with someone, it's good if we can both develop a sense of what the drama's about or just that there is drama and maybe in some sense negotiate a truce, not a kind of truce of denial or avoiding subjects that are sensitive, but getting through some of that. And that's the work of relationship, whether it's friendship or a real intimate relationship, that's a big part of the work of it. That practice my teacher talked about, which is to be that which nothing can take root in, which is an attitude really, but it's also it's a little bit of a pause to step back and observe is this something I'm getting hooked into or is something that I'm allowing to hook into me really it's me getting hooked into that it's definitely a cooperative process it takes two to tango as far as getting hooked in if someone's trying to manipulate me or hook me into something, I do have some choice over whether I get hooked in, which is not the same as. Someone's in a car accident and they're bleeding and they need first aid. That's not psychologically created. On some level, it might be. Who knows? But in general, that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like where there's really, you need to jump in and help someone who's physically in danger. That's a whole different category. Where someone's got some psychological drama that's not really life-threatening, but they're in some dramatic loop and they're trying to pull you in. You're not obligated to do that necessarily. And actually, it could even be life threatening if someone's an addict. If someone's really in a cycle of addiction, there's only so much you can do for them. I certainly recommend a compassionate approach to helping people when you can. But you may have also had the experience of people who they seem to want help or they need help, but they don't want help. They're not ready to take it. It's like that thing they say in AA that you can't really start the process of recovery from addiction until you hit a certain kind of bottom. And hopefully, it's not a bottom that's fatal there's only so much you can do for someone else for myself i can make a conscious choice to like <laughs> make the bottom that i'm going to hit higher <laughs> the more conscious i am of the drama that i'm creating in my life i can raise that bottom that i'm willing to sink to before i do something about it maybe that's one of the roles of consciousness and self-observation is to raise the floor so i don't necessarily have to go into a really deep chasm of drama chaos
2: suffering for myself and others and that conscious decision just really derails what was going to happen and that is what I think magic would be because you're more like I'm just going to really just think this out and realize that in five minutes I'll be in a totally different paradigm and be almost a different person entirely mm-hmm. if I go this way with these thoughts and um, that's where the self-awareness is is super important
1: yeah fortune favors the prepared so If I'm in a circumstance where there's an opportunity, it could be a positive opportunity, or it could be avoiding a negative opportunity, a negative circumstance. If I'm prepared, I've got a much better chance of having a good outcome. And part of being prepared is just being conscious of what's going on in myself and the environment. Like, maybe I don't want to walk down that alley to take that shortcut. It might be really obvious. And in retrospect, it might be really obvious. Oh, I shouldn't have gone down that alley. But if I'd been a little bit more aware and looked at that alley before I walked down it, maybe I would have saved myself a whole lot of grief.
4: Yeah, for me, being prepared is also when I see the drama triangle, what kind of role is my favorite role? If I know that I love to be the victim, the powerful place on the drama Mm -hmm. triangle, or when I love to be the rescuer, then I can have this kind of preparedness for what's coming next, I'm prepared. And do I serve the drama that I am, like the drama, try to persecute a victim or rescuer, or do I step outside the game? And what you mentioned, like, magic for me, is serving a higher purpose in the moment and serving what is wanted and needed in this moment, and step out of my ego and see, okay. If my higher aim is in this moment to create harmony, then I'm not going and play the oh la la victim. And I say, no, the harmony is my higher aim. So I'm going for that. And as soon as I'm stepping out of the game, nobody can play with me because they have nobody to play with. So then there is no drama. What I really want to see is my complete responsibility in any kind of drama going on, yeah? And to say, okay, it's my responsibility to stop the game. Or if I like to, then I make a conscious decision to play the game because I love to have this drama in the moment, but to see what I'm doing, yeah?
1: I sort of lifted from a workshop I was participating in boundaries have a lot to do with trust. You mentioned the drama triangle. The drama triangle is this idea that whenever there's drama, we're in in a dramatic situation, or typically so. There are three roles to be played. One is the persecutor, one is the victim, and one is the rescuer. And we unconsciously, psychologically, we choose one of these roles to be in And they create the drama. I was talking a lot earlier about the victim position where all this drama is going on in my life. And it seems like fate. It seems like destiny. It seems like life just does this to me. Oh, this always happens to me. It could be that I'm choosing a victim position. It's very suspicious when I have those kinds of thoughts or I say those kinds of things. Oh, poor me. I'm at the effect of these forces beyond my control. That's a victim position. It's pretty suspicious. The persecutor position, where I might choose to violate someone else's boundaries that I'm aware of, or I'm pretending not to be aware of, or I don't care about violating someone else's boundaries in a sense, persecuting them, even persecuting really more dramatic ways. I choose that role of persecutor because that creates a sort of satisfaction for me. I have some psychological reason to play the role of persecutor and create this drama. And another one that us good people are familiar with, all of us nice people, is playing the role of rescuer, which is trying to save someone, you know, that example I used of someone who might be dealing with addiction and not really taking responsibility for it. You can't necessarily rescue someone. You might try, you might want to, but if you keep investing yourself beyond a level that's actually serving, that's actually useful, it may be an indication that you're putting yourself in this rescuer role which again has a certain emotional satisfaction of playing the rescuer. It feels very virtuous. I'm, in a sense, a very highly evolved person because I'm playing the rescuer here. But it's really just all part of this drama triangle. And whatever role you're in, in a drama triangle, they're all ways of actually denying responsibility for the truth of the situation. The persecutor, the victim, and the rescuer. They're all different ways of playing this game that is... Not taking responsibility for the circumstance. So they say when they talk about the drama triangle that the way to get out of the drama triangle is to take responsibility for your position, your role that you've created for yourself. If I'm in a victim role, the way out of the victim role is to take responsibility. For example, seeing how I might have created this circumstance and acknowledging that I might actually have some ways to deal with it that I haven't been. Acknowledging there are things I could do to get myself out of the situation, enforce or respect my own boundaries. If it's a really extreme situation, you might need to leave the circumstance. Also, with persecutor and rescuer, if you're in the persecutor role, it's not that I want to be an asshole here. It's
0: <laughs>
1: you think you're doing the right thing when you're a persecutor. The persecutor feels righteous in their own way. They're straightening out a situation that needs to be straightened out, setting someone straight on something forcing them to get in line, pushing them to do the thing that they really should do. The persecutor role has this aggression to it that is founded on feeling very self-righteous. Even though you might be doing something horrible, you feel like you're doing the right thing. So taking responsibility is the way out of the drama triangle. So that's a little footnote to the thing I wanted to say about trust. There's two forms trust can take. The conventional way we relate to trust is what can be called earned trust. Which means I don't trust you until you prove that you're trustworthy. And it seems like a reasonable approach because I'm not sticking my neck out until you prove you can be trusted. And certainly there can be situations, literally physical dangerous situations, in which getting the other person to demonstrate some trust makes a lot of sense. But in most of our relationships, maybe even in all our relationships, there's another kind of trust, which is what's called generous trust or granted trust. It's much more conducive to actually creating wholesome relationships. Whereas I start by trusting you. I give you trust and maybe it's a measured amount of trust to begin with. And it takes certain kind of courage to do that. It takes, like we were talking about boundaries before, the internal respecting of my own boundaries. That's a foundation for me to be able to trust you in a generous way because I know I can handle myself. Someone smarter than me said, if I don't trust you, if I don't trust a situation or a circumstance, actually what I don't trust is myself in that circumstance. So if I'm with a manipulative person and I don't trust them, if I'm honest with myself, it's that I don't trust myself around that person because I know I'm likely to get sucked into whatever their manipulation is. Really what that means is I don't trust myself to be with that person. And that's about respecting my own boundaries. My boundaries are not your job. My boundaries are my job. And part of this mood of generous trust is recognizing that I will be hurt in circumstances if I'm extending trust, but I can recover. Obviously, I'm not going to do that in a situation that's really physically dangerous. But in a lot of situations, in relationship situations, I can afford to take the risk of being hurt because I'm putting myself in a much stronger position to have this generous trust as opposed to counting on you to create a circumstance where I can have earned trust. So generous trust is about me. It's an internal process as opposed to earned trust, which is about you. You have to prove that you're worthy of trust. I think most of these things are a little bit self-explanatory. At this point, are there any more questions, comments, things people would like to talk about more?
3: While you were speaking, I remembered from Don Juan Control Folly. Controlled Folly, yes. And how that works in, because in Control Folly, you could be apparently creating drama, but you're not in it.
1: If you read Castaneda's books, when he talks about Controlled Folly, Controlled Folly is A way that a warrior, a spiritual warrior, meets life, recognizing that everything is folly. Maybe it's something like the statement from the other Indian philosophies that reality is a kind of illusion, but that we are here to interact with this reality. And the folly of a warrior's life is under control.
3: It's detachment. It's not attachment What's going on? You look like you're totally in the drama, but internally, you're not attached. You're just playing your role in the situation. Internally, you're not a victim, a persecutor, or a rescuer. You're just playing a role. Because you've taken a responsibility for it. Yes, responsibility is the door to everything.
2: When people get caught up in trying to help other people all the time, It's kind of a form of emotional slavery. The idea that I needed to go and save everyone or I needed them to hear what I had to say was sort of like me capturing them in my net.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you've ever been in a situation where someone's trying to rescue you, you may have noticed that there's something a little creepy about it. (laughs) You know, if someone's trying to rescue me, I feel like, And it can be hard if someone you care about is doing something really seriously terrible to themselves. There's only so much you can do to help other people. Yeah, until someone's ready to be helped. Trust is not about whether someone's going to hurt you. I think Bob Marley said, didn't he, that anyone you love is going to break your heart. It's just a matter of picking the people who are worth it in your life as friends and lovers. You're going to get hurt. But that attitude, this resilience, the attitude that I will be hurt, but I can recover, or resilience which is about taking responsibility for yourself as opposed to with earned trust, this more victim-like position of it's your fault. It's tricky and it takes some maturity to be able to live this way. I certainly feel like this is something I need to do some work on to be consistently this way. But I think it's a very powerful idea that my boundaries are internal and that I can afford to offer generous trust. It's a much more powerful position There's much more power in generous trust than in waiting for someone to prove that they're trustworthy.
5: I would say that generous trust, because I've been burned, has to be accompanied by a lot of discretion and distinction like the other things on the list. I have to be resilient and not just able to take the pain and suffering and loss of money, which I did, but Mm. be confident and be Like a warrior and have intuition and say, okay, I'll go this far instead of going all the way, which is Mm -hmm. what I did, is I'll go meet you a little bit, one third of the way and test you, which is kind of the earn trust. But regardless, I guess what I'm saying, there's this other piece of it, which is that.
1: To have uh, your wits about you.
5: Yeah, that discrimination of trust, but verify. What are the signs that this isn't what I think it is? Because I'd rather have the generous trust of my fellow man, but I've gotten burned. So there's a lesson there about the dynamics of that relationship. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point, especially in circumstances where there's money involved. You know, the count from Lithuania who has $5 million he needs to transfer to an American bank He's randomly picked you somehow off the internet to help him with this business transaction, right? It's good to be a little bit perspicacious and not to be naive. I think it was Robert Bly used to say that maybe he got it somewhere else. He was talking about the development of young men into mature men. He said, the naive man invites betrayal. And I think maybe that's just an example of creating something for ourselves to learn from. And I'd say it's a good. Principle to never bet more than you can afford to lose financially is that example. But yeah, it definitely takes discrimination and discernment and to not be in denial if you start to see the warning signs. Wasn't it Mark Twain who said, Good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment? (laughs) That's kind of how it is. And uh, hopefully, we don't get ourselves into too deep trouble before we start developing judgment. All the better to start thinking about things the earlier we can. We can all relate to that experience where we extend trust when, in a sense, we didn't know better. And it's very natural for children to trust in that situation. It's up to us to be trustworthy. All right, I've got some great quotes from some people I want to read here about reducing drama. So, this is a quote from this book, The Black Swan The Impact of the Highly Improbable by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he's talking about an experience he had. He says, my classmate in Paris, the novelist-to-be, Jean-Olivier Tedesco, pronounced, as he prevented me from running to catch the subway, I don't run for trains. Snub your destiny. I have taught myself to resist running to keep on schedule. This may seem a very small piece of advice, but it registered. In refusing to run to catch trains, I have felt the true value of elegance and aesthetics in my behavior, a sense of being in control of my time, my schedule, and my life. Missing a train is only painful if you run after it. Likewise, not matching the idea of success others expect from you is only painful if that's what you're seeking. Yeah, a point I wanted to make is that Drama might be the opposite of dignity. Might be a useful way to look at it. That drama is the opposite of dignity, and dignity is not just about being stuffy and dignified. Dignity is just your basic dignity as a human being. There's a French teacher, Arnaud de Jourdan, who used to speak a lot about intrinsic dignity and intrinsic nobility. I guess that's maybe a teaching he got from his teacher in India. But the idea is that we have an intrinsic dignity and intrinsic nobility to our essential self. And when we create drama, when we get sucked into drama that other people create or we create it ourselves, we lose touch with our dignity. And this example of running after trains, I think, is really good. There's something dignified about either you miss the train and you just wait for the next one, or maybe even better, is to set yourself up to be on time to be there for the train. As opposed to running at the last minute to catch the train. It's very dramatic, but maybe not necessary if we just set ourselves up, allow a little extra time to get to that train. Because as an adult, you know there are things that may interfere with you getting to the train on time. There could be a lot of traffic on the street. You can't cross the road as fast as you thought. All these different things that can cause us to be a little bit delayed. So setting yourself up for less drama might be getting out the door a little bit earlier so that you can be there on time to catch that train. Or just being at peace if you don't make that train you catch the next one. And that's, that's what it is. What did he say here? He said, in refusing to run to catch trains, I have felt the true value of elegance and aesthetics in behavior. I think that's such a great point.
2: Any comments on that? I don't think he lives in San Francisco. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I get it. Yeah.
4: It's also in trend when we are busy, when we are catching the train in the last moment, and then everybody sees how... You must be very important. How uh, important everybody. I <laughs> am, how busy I am, how, oh mm-hmm. my God, I may have to manage so many things. Imagine when you are saying, I have time today, and I compare it to German culture, American culture is very dramatic. Really? Yeah, everything is on stage. What I learned from my first moment on this planet, it's dramatic, yeah? And then it's worse. something. I am worse. something.
1: Is this something to identify with?
0: In one way, this seems to be about developing being. I don't think that I'm able to Avoid having a reaction. I'm going to have a reaction. But if I bring some attention to that and self observe with relaxed body, as they say, then I have more of a choice about whether I'm going to start running or whether I will take a breath and move quickly but intentionally rather than being taken by emotion.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of emphasis in the standard culture around us on doing, not so much emphasis on being. As if doing, the more things we're doing, it proves our reality, when really our reality comes from our being and coming into connection with that. And that's what he was describing here in the dignity and aesthetic value of not running for trains, the the true value of elegance and aesthetics in behavior. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was this idea of Your personal evolution or spiritual practice as an aesthetic process, like looking for a beautiful or graceful way to go through life. I've got a couple good quotes here. This is one from Castaneda, talking about his teacher Don Juan. Maybe Castaneda made the whole Don Juan thing up. There's debate about that. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I know the teachings that come out of Castaneda's books I think are really great. So Castaneda is saying, This is Castaneda speaking about Don Juan. He explained to me then the intricacies of choice. He said that choice for warrior travelers was not really the act of choosing, but rather the act of acquiescing elegantly to the solicitations of infinity. Infinity chooses, he said. The art of the warrior traveler is to have the ability to move with the slightest insinuation the art of acquiescing to every command of infinity. For this, a warrior traveler needs prowess, strength, and above everything else, sobriety. All those three put together give, as a result, elegance. Really like that. Like the elegance of not running for a train, but also there's a transcendental elegance we can experience and manifest To tie it into our talk, if we're not indulging in drama, if instead we're listening for what are the insinuations of infinity, what is the universe telling me? If I can learn to listen that way, it's very highly evolved. My teacher talked about what he called spiritual slavery or slavery to the will of God. And this to me is a description of the same thing noticing, being sensitive to, and responding to, acquiescing to the insinuations of infinity. In a practical sense, there's hints around us all the time of what we should do. You know, if we listen, oftentimes life will tell us, the universe will tell us what needs to happen. But if I'm caught up in my own internal processes, my own drama, I'm never going to hear that stuff. So a lot of spiritual practice, to my understanding, is about learning to, in some sense, slow down. I might still be moving, doing things. But internally, to slow down, to have that kind of elegance of listening for, not the psychological listening for I was talking about earlier, but to actually listen for the insinuations of infinity. What's the universe telling me needs to happen? And there are clues. There are clues we get. And ritual, to talk about ritual again, ritual can be a way of accessing some of that information. Divination rituals that are used in many cultures around the world. They're not just, fortune-telling. Am I going to be lucky in love? Madame Marie, going to Madame Marie to get my fortune told in Atlantic City, right? No, there's a deeper practice to that, which is to try and sense what's going on. What will the universe tell me if I throw the I Ching, the way the yarrow stalks land? And there's obviously an art to learning to read such things. It's not something I do on a regular basis, but there is an art to learning that. And in learning that art, I'm sure you develop some subtlety and sensitivity to understand what is the universe telling you. Because the universe is all interconnected. It's all like a big hologram. That's why throwing the I Ching might be a way to get information about something that has nothing to do with the arrow stalks. But it's a way of connecting your consciousness into what's going on. What's the universe trying to tell you? I love this quote. This is a quote from Ira Glass. The radio host, This American Life on NPR. He also happens to be the cousin of the composer, Philip Glass. So the idea here is perseverance. Perseverance is a property of dignity. That's why this quote is relevant. It says, Nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone had told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there is this gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff. It's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting, creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this. And if you are just starting out or you are still in this phase, you got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you will finish one story. It is only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. I took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've ever met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You've just got to fight your way through. I think that's a fine piece of wisdom. Some of you who are engaged in creative work relate to that. This idea of your taste is telling you what the potential is, but you're just not up to it yet because you haven't done enough of it. What is it? 10,000 hours, they say you have to do something. When you start to manifest something in whatever creative work you're doing, you're telling yourself, ah, oh, it's not very good. You know, it might not be very good yet, but that doesn't mean it's not worthy and that you shouldn't be doing it. Well, you have to fail to get somewhere. That's what it's about. The greatest teacher failure is. Yoda said that. I was talking earlier about how drama is a choice. Drama is a choice. So here's a quote from Werner Erhard. People think the choices they make in life don't make any difference. They feel as if the decisions they make don't matter much. In fact, we live in a kind of unseen agreement that nobody really makes any difference. When you do make a difference, you're empowered. People are often unwilling to be empowered. Why would people be unwilling to be empowered? Well, if you are empowered, You suddenly have a lot of work to do because you have the power to do it. If you are unempowered, you are less dominated by the opportunities in front of you. In other words, you have an excuse to not do the work. You have a familiar way out. You have the security of being able to do what you always have done and get away with it. But if you are empowered, suddenly you must step out, innovate, create. The cost, however, of being unempowered is people's self expression. They always have the feeling that they have something in them that they never really gave, never really expressed. Mm -hmm. By simply revealing the payoffs and costs of being unempowered, people have a choice. They begin to see that it is possible to make the choice to be empowered rather than to function without awareness. Empowerment requires a breakthrough. And in part, that breakthrough is a kind of shift from looking for a leader to a sense of personal responsibility. The problems we now have in communities and societies are going to be resolved only when we are brought together by a common sense that each of us is visionary. Each of us must come to the realization that we can function aware at the level of vision rather than following some great leader's vision. Instead of looking for a great leader, we are in an era where each of us needs to find a great leader in ourselves. Werner Erhard has got a great way with words. I really enjoy some of those pithy things he says, and he puts it really, really well, I think. So this idea of being empowered versus unempowered. Being unempowered is kind of like the victim position. Drama happens in life. I can't do anything about it. Uh, for me, unempowered, it's so familiar and it's so comfortable and it's so safe. It doesn't require me to step out and make a difference. But if I choose to be empowered and accept that I do have some power, it's a whole different ballgame.